are listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. I'll uh, introduce them from the, uh, from the paper, but I'll have to say before I introduce them that I, I've known, I think I knew Troy before I even got married, because my first introduction to Troy was that he played trombone and we invited him and he played in the Faith Philharmonic. How many of you remember what that is? <laughs> On fourth Sundays for many years, we'd uh, have a little uh, introductory uh, orchestra that played with the hymn. So Troy, I still remember that. And I think I, as, I don't think you've introduced it to your kids to it yet, but uh, maybe that will come. <laughs> ah, okay. Well, let me get to the real introduction. Troy and Lauren, Hawkins have been married for 10 years, been attending Faith Church for 11. They have three children, Benjamin, eight years old, Emma, six, and Clara, who's four. They also have a very friendly one-eyed cat who is incredibly graceful, a cat with no depth perception. How can she possibly be? <laughs> huh. Maybe that's one of the nine lives has been expended already, huh? Uh, Troy works as a scientist, and Laura worked as a nurse before deciding to stay home with the kids. That's a common position. So welcome, Troy and Laura. Come and share your story. And uh, Well, thanks, everybody, for coming. I'm, I'm Troy. Um, so I was actually born and raised in Kansas City. I'm not from this area um, uh, in a town called Liberty, Missouri. And uh, uh, I, I grew up in a Christian home. We kind of bounced around between uh, between kind of the the church uh, the churches of, of the town. I think I went to three different ones uh, growing up. But um, but you know, I, I think uh, average Christian family. I, I was baptized uh, at nine years old, Chandler Baptist Church, just outside of Liberty. Um, and did my undergraduate work at William Jewell College, which was a, a college that was supported by the Missouri Baptists. Um, uh, and then when I finished up there, uh, that's when I moved to Indiana. I came to Purdue for graduate school um, in 2003. Um, so, you know, and, and Phil alluded to this, but, you know, I was always involved in music in the church. My dad was a pianist and uh, you know, I, I played the trombone. And so I was always not sitting out in the congregation, but uh, I was always up with a robe on. You guys don't do robes here, but, uh, but I was always wearing a robe. Um, playing the trombone back in the in the orchestra, and continued to do that a little bit uh, as I as I came to Indiana, um, but fell a little bit out of uh, kind of weekly going to church while I was in graduate school, and didn't get back into it until after Lauren and I met, um, which I think was my fourth or fifth year of graduate school at Purdue. Um, and then, uh, you know, as we were as we were preparing to uh, to get married and, and start our life together in Indy, she asked me if I would try to find a church in, in Indianapolis. And um, I can't remember exactly what the path was to faith, but, <laughs> but ended up here. And it was, it was really strange, actually. I was living on the south side of Indy um, in Greenwood. So it was a, a hefty commute to, to faith church um, and still is a hefty commute to, to faith church because we live in Pendleton. And so it's about a 40 minute drive either way. Um, but, that, but yeah, that's how we got here. And uh, you can probably just kind of continue from there uh, how you got to know each other. You applied it was at Purdue, and that uh, uh, led you further into your story. Yeah. <laughs> so I met Troy my senior year at Purdue for my first undergraduate. He was just finishing his PhD, um, and he actually finished mid-semester in October, so he wasn't actually at Purdue at the same time that I was, that I knew him at Purdue for that long, and then he moved to Indianapolis to start his first job, um, and so that's kind of how we ended up in Indy, and so we did kind of a long-distance relationship, although Troy traveled that distance quite frequently <laughs> from Indy back to Lafayette, so um, yeah, that's kind of, I don't know, that's how we met at Purdue, and we started dating, and then we ended up getting married. That's how we're here today to tell our story. Um, and we had two children, Benjamin and Emma, 
you want to go ahead and start talking about sure, I, I, I guess I, you called your story uh, Daily Bread. Yeah. And I guess that's why we talked about the. Yeah, Amory came up with that question. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you have to eat one thing, what would it be? The manna, obviously. No, I'm kidding. But um, yeah, that's where that question came from. So yeah, so our story, our faith story, what we're going to talk about today, um, started in 2016. We've been married for six years. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm like, how long have we been married? Um, we had two children at that point. Benjamin was three. And Emma had just turned one in 2016. Um, and about a month after she turned one, um, we found out we were pregnant with our third child. Um, and that was kind of a surprise, but we were uh, really excited, obviously. Um, and then shortly after we found out we were pregnant, I had some signs and symptoms of what we thought was a miscarriage. Um, and that kind of started our journey on this really complex pregnancy. Um, so with that first, with that first sign and symptom, um, you go and you get blood work done and they see if your lab levels look like they should for that point in your pregnancy. And so that was our first step that we did. And those looked normal. Um, but I was still experiencing what really looked like a miscarriage. And so we had an ultrasound at that point, And, um, that was the first time we saw our baby and, um, we saw a perfectly healthy tiny, tiny baby, um, that early with a really strong heartbeat. And so that was truly like incredible to us as we had experienced a miscarriage before, and this looked exactly the same. And so we really had an expectation that we were having another miscarriage and we were kind of dealing with that grief already. And then we found out that our baby looked fine. Um, and what was happening was I actually had what's called a subchorionic hematoma and you can Google that later. <laughs> um, but that can actually be, uh, it can happen in pregnancy and women cannot even know. Um, it can happen in pregnancy and they can have signs and symptoms like I had, um, but then the, it can heal on its own. Or in some cases it can continue to progress and get worse. And that is unfortunately what happened in our pregnancy. And so we didn't know that at seven weeks, we had um, the thought that maybe it would heal on its own. And so I was put on partial bed rest at that point with our two small children. Um, which was really difficult, but we thought, okay, we can do this. It was only supposed to be for a limited time um, while we waited for this subchorionic hematoma to heal. Um, and then at 11 weeks, I had a pretty significant, significant hemorrhage. Um, and so we were back at the doctor for that, obviously. Um, and I actually was admitted to the hospital for monitoring at that point because it was that severe. And um, we were told by a maternal field medicine doctor who had come to see us that um, I would miscarry that night. Like the, it was just a significant enough crisis in that pregnancy that he had told us, you will miscarry tonight. And I said, well, what if I, what if I don't? And he said, well, if you don't, the only other pregnancy I've seen like yours with a bleed this heavy and a, a hematoma this large, um, that person made it to 21 weeks of pregnancy and then delivered her baby, which if you're not familiar, 21 weeks of, into a pregnancy is not um, a viable, uh, what do you call it? Baby. <laughs> yeah, essentially. <laughs> That's not the word I was looking for, but that'll work. So if you have your baby that early there, it just isn't any chance that your baby will survive. Um, and that's what he told us. And pretty bluntly, actually, um, for the first time I'd ever met this man for him to come in and tell me that, um, that was kind of the prognosis that we had for this pregnancy. Um, which was really devastating. I mean, we had thought we were having a miscarriage and then we made it a few more weeks and then we were told we would for sure have a miscarriage. Um, and so that's kind of what we thought would happen. Um, and then it, it didn't happen. So I did not have a miscarriage that night. Um, there was just still so much uncertainty about what would happen at that point. I was put on full bed rest, but sent home because there isn't anything that you can do to stop it if it's going to happen at that point in pregnancy. So it was a really helpless feeling and kind of a hopeless feeling, um, when you're told you will absolutely not have this baby, um, but you're still pregnant. And so, um, we were walking through that. I just daily wondering like, what is going to happen today? What will today look like? Um, and that was really hard. Um, but so in that we went back to our regular OB every week, we were there for an ultrasound to just kind of monitor um, and see what was going on. Um, 
And so every week we would go and just kind of hold our breath and wait to see what we would find out about our pregnancy. Um, if our baby was still alive and what that hematoma looked like. Um, and it fluctuated a little bit, um, from week to week, sometimes it would look a little better and sometimes it would look a little worse. And then at 15 weeks, almost 15 weeks, we went in for our ultrasound and our B, our OB came in and we love our OB. We trust him completely. We, it was not the same situation of the doctor we just met. It was someone who had walked with us through our other pregnancies. And, um, so we really trusted in him and knew that he cared for us. And he came in and sat down and just said, you you can't, this pregnancy cannot be sustained. You will not have a baby. Um, either you will go into labor any minute or she will stop growing. And so I just remember thinking like, how can this, how can this be? Um, and I asked him at that point, like, is there, there's just no other option. And he said, I just don't see, I don't see how there can be. Um, and that night we went home after hearing that news and I felt her move for the very first time. Um, and so it was just like holding grief and devastation at what we were told would never happen, but knowing we were still pregnant and feeling that sweet baby move. And so it was just like every day continuing on having to wait to see what would happen. Um, and I was hospitalized a couple of more times after that. Um, every week we would continue to go in for that ultrasound. And I remember around 18 weeks, ROB looked at us and he said, I don't know, guys, I'm starting to feel a little hopeful. <laughs> and I remember us saying to him, like, we have to have hope. We, we have to have hope because we are still pregnant. And so we can trust the Lord um, that whatever he has for us, we can still have hope. Um, and eventually I was, I was hospitalized at around 22 weeks, um, which is very close to viability age for um, an infant to be born. It's not great, obviously, if your baby is born um, super early, but there is a small chance that they could survive. And so that was really hard, actually, that getting admitted at 22 weeks, because it felt like we were so close. 23 weeks is when they say you can have a baby with a chance of survival. And so it felt like, how have we made it this far? And now we're going to lose our baby at 22 weeks. But we didn't. Um, it was close, but we didn't. And I stayed in the hospital. I ended up staying in the hospital until she was born then at 26 weeks. So she was still, um, like extremely premature. Um, when she was born, she was one pound and 14 ounces and she was 14 inches long. So she was smaller than a baby doll. Um, just like nothing we'd ever seen, but she was here. Um, and the way that the events transpired on the day that she was born were truly just incredible because, um, we'd actually almost had to deliver her the night before her birthday actually. And so Troy had come down, um, he was at home with our other two kids. My mom was there thankfully. Um, so he was able to come down that night and she ended up not having to be delivered. Um, but he stayed the night with me and then he was there the next morning when all our doctors came through and he was getting ready to go to work. And I asked him if he could stay for just a few more minutes and he did. And that's when everything happened. And I had to be taken to, um, emergency, an emergency C-section and she was born. And so just the fact that he was there, he never would have made it in time. Had he not already been there, there's just no way he could have come that fast. Um, was just such a kindness from the Lord to us. We felt like that he got to be there. And then also, um, our, my OB was the one who delivered her, which, um, he was actually only in the hospital like three out of seven days a week. And so, um, chances were that he probably wouldn't have been the one, especially with an emergency situation where we just didn't know when she would come. Um, so the fact that he was there just really felt, um, like the Lord was taking care of us in that too. And even some of our favorite nurses were there. I was there for almost a month. And so you kind of, you get repeat nurses and you get your favorites who takes care of you. Um, and one of those nurses was my actual nurse. And then two of the other ones that I loved were both there and they just held my hands on, on the, as I'm being wheeled back to the OR and it just, we could not have prayed for those specific things to have fallen into place the way that they did. Um, because we never would have, I mean, we wouldn't have prayed for her to come at 26 weeks. We, it was truly a miracle that we made it that far into our pregnancy. Um, and just the way that those things fell into place really just felt like such a kindness to us from the Lord. 
Um, so that's how she was born. That was our pregnancy. We kind of call that part one. <laughs> um, because a baby who's born at 26 weeks still has a lot of challenges to overcome. Um, and so she was born at Community North and we, she went to the NICU there and we felt like it was just like a dream world. Basically, <laughs> we kind of lived in a naive bubble. She actually did really, really well after she was born for a 26 week baby um, for about eight days. <laughs> she did really great. Um, and so we felt really safe. And I think naively we had kind of, I had kind of thought and hoped like our pregnancy had been so hard and so challenging that maybe her course in the NICU, which we knew would be long, um, no matter what we knew it would be a long time, but I just thought maybe it will be smooth. Maybe she won't have any of these preemie things that can happen to her. She was at high risk for every preemie thing that you can think of being that early, but I had just thought maybe she won't have that since we had already been through so much. Um, but that is not what happened. <laughs> I'll let Teresa. Yeah. So as you can imagine, I, I experienced a, a lot of this a little bit differently than, than Lauren did. Uh, and, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't ever describe myself as uh, high strung, but, um, 2016, you know, going through the year, uh, my anxiety just skyrocketed. I mean, it was, uh, I'd started a new job at the beginning of the year and, um, I'm in uh, scientific management. Uh, and so I was hiring people and starting new research programs and traveling. Um, I remember, you know, I was in Switzerland and I was interviewing someone on the phone and, you know, you know, bouncing back and forth between checking up on, on Lauren, who is in the middle of this situation. And my mom who had had a couple of, uh, of, um, uh, bad medical diagnoses at the same time. And, um, and actually by the time we got to, when Claire was born, which was, uh, it was kind of peak anxiety. I, I remember standing in the room with my bag slung over my shoulder and my jacket on and a coffee in my hand and her yelling at me from the bathroom to go get the, the nurses. Um, and then all of a sudden we're in this, this time where she's here, she's born we're, you know, in the penthouse of Community North, and we've got these beautiful south-facing windows and looking over, you know, the, the forest, and uh, they keep everything super quiet there. Um, and so, like, everything just started to kind of lull me back into, hey, we're, we've made it. We're through. We're here. Everything's cool. Um, and then uh, about eight days into um, about eight days, eight days after she was born, uh, we started to get kind of the first signs of um, something happening. And in, in that setting, it's you know beeps, <laughs> lots of lots of beeps, and you know someone coming into the room and hushing an alarm. And it just started to happen more frequently and more frequently um, until you know I think it was about twenty four hours into that. Um, where we got the, the diagnosis that, that she had something called necrotizing enterocolitis, which is a, a pretty common um, disease in preterm infants, uh, especially those as, as small as she was, where um, uh, the, the guts just start to, to die off. Um, and it can resolve in a number of different ways, uh, but hers just got progressively worse. Um, and about 36 hours into that, we had a, a, a physician who had come up to, to staff the NICU at Community from Riley, and he he told us, she's got to go. She's she, This is a bad case. She's got to go to Riley. And so um, we spent the next few hours kind of preparing her to, to be transported to Riley and not knowing what was going to happen. Um, and uh, it was a... It, you always think I watch too much ER and stuff like that. You always think these things happen really fast, but they don't. Um, yeah, it took several hours for her to get prepped and, and ready to, to go. And then, um, you know, we are following this ambulance that, that, you know, had lights and sirens on, but we're sitting here in, in, uh, in our car following behind it in silence. Um, and that, that followed up with us getting to Riley, not getting to see her for, for another three hours uh, while she's getting stabilized in the room. And I'm sure it, it felt like ER <laughs> back in there, but we're just out in the waiting room waiting for, for, for everything to, to happen and waiting to get news. 
Um, so that was a really, really difficult time. Not a good prognosis, not good conversations with the doctors that came out to give us updates on what was going on. Um, finally, we got to, to, to go back and see her. This was late, late at night, probably 11 o'clock or so, the night before Thanksgiving in 2016. Um, and we, we got back into the room. And if you've never been into one of these rooms, there's you know, baby in this big kind of, they call it isolate. It's a big incubator. She got like stacks of IV poles <laughs> with lots of tubes and lots of other stuff going on and doctors in and out and nurses in and out and just crazy. Um, and in the midst of it, Lauren, who's a, who's a nurse uh, by training, um, just asked, you know, we, we knew she was going to have to have surgery. The, the physician had told us that. Um, she just asked, well, who is it? Who's going to do it? Um, and it ended up uh, that, that Fred Rascorla was there that night. Um, and you know, I had never been, I, I, don't, I don't think I'd ever met him um, but Lauren had worked with Michelle on, on women's events, um, before then. Um, it was just a, just an amazing coincidence that there on, on Thanksgiving that Fred was there. He was very, very confident and reassuring and communicated to us very frankly about what was going on. Um, she ended up having surgery that night. Uh, I think she went in about one thirty in the morning, took about three hours. Um, and, uh, it was a successful a successful surgery. I mean, she was, she was going to die and she was saved by that. Um, yeah. And I think too, um, we talk about Fred a lot <laughs> and he always says, Oh, it was a team, a team effort, a team effort. And it, it was, it truly was her care team. I mean, was incredible. There were so many physicians and so many nurse practitioners and so many nurses who came in, um, at that time to help stabilize her and save her life. Truly. Um, but we were just in a state of just pure chaos, just totally devastated that we had had this miracle baby that she had made it. And then we thought we were going to lose her. And we didn't even know if she would survive in the ambulance from community North to Riley. There was a good chance that she would not survive that. Premies do not like to travel. That's what they told us. And she was so sick. Um, and so we got there and we were waiting and we just were truly just that pain is unimaginable while you're just waiting to find out if your baby will live. And then we got back there and they told us that Fred was a surgeon and it truly was a team effort. I'll give him credit for that. But to have him there was that in that moment, I just knew like that was the Lord saying to us, I'm here, I'm in control. And like that relief that we felt and not even like that Fred was going to fix her or save her life or that the outcome was going to be good. It was just that we can trust the Lord with any outcome because we know he's here and he's faithful. And that is why Fred is so important in that story. It's just, um, another thing we just could not have prayed for that to have fallen into place in that way that he would be the surgeon on call the night before Thanksgiving. Um, and that he would be the one to do her first surgery. Like truly, we just could not have prayed for that to have gone that way. And it did. And so that was so comforting to us. And I remember I texted Michelle right away and I said, Claire is at Riley and she's not doing well, but we were just taking so much comfort in the fact that Fred is here. And we know that that is the Lord holding us in whatever happens. Um, so that was kind of the first part of her NICU journey at Riley. And um, people say a lot of things about the NICU. If you have a NICU experience, they'll say like, it's a roller coaster and all of it feels a little, um, trite when you're living it because it is, it is truly just a different world there. Um, and preemie babies are very unpredictable. Um, and so she did have a successful first surgery. Um, but there were lots of times where she, um, was sick again to the point where we wasn't, we weren't sure if she would live from the next thing that she went through. And so it was just a lot of uncertainty and not knowing, um, what her future would look like if she would have a future or how we would, how we would bear it. Um, and so that's kind of where we got our title when we said we wanted to title it daily bread. Um, because there was one specific time I remember in the NICU at Riley, she was born in November. And so shortly after she got there, they put in visitor restrictions to protect babies from the flu and RSV. Um, and so we could have four people on a list to come and see us. And that was it. Um, 
but we could have four visitors and then one pastoral staff. And so Tom Macy got to come into the NICU and he came several times and truly like his presence was just such a comfort, but there was one time he was there and, um, things just did not look good for her. We'd already been through so much with her and we just didn't even know what to pray for. We didn't know how to pray or what to pray. And he just prayed with us. Um, that he said, I remember like, we don't have the words. We don't know what to ask for. So we are just asking, um, that you would give us our daily bread. And that really just stuck with us because we, it was just like, yes, we can't know what will happen with her or, um, what the next week holds for her. But we know that the Lord will provide for us in this day, in this next moment, even exactly what we need. And so that's kind of where we came up with the daily bread that really carried us through just remembering that like, okay, what we want is a miracle. What we want is for her to be healed. And what we got was daily bread. And I think, um, there's kind of two parts to that, to her story, because she, spoiler alert, she lives through the NICU. <laughs> spoiler alert, so I'll say it. Um, so she is truly this miraculous baby where we were told we would not have a baby. And then so many things that she went through where she could have died and she didn't, and she's here. And so she, we know that the Lord, it was only by the Lord making a way for her that she is here with us. And so, um, because that she is a miracle, we do and we should praise him for that. Um, but there's also the piece where we had to live in that uncertainty, not knowing what would happen every day for months. Um, and just the ways that we can look back and see how the Lord provided for us those daily bread moments. And I think too, like sometimes we didn't recognize it and it's just like completely his grace to us now that we can look back and see all the ways that he provided for us and the ways that he was refining us and deepening our faith in the daily um moment to moment just learning how to rely on him and trust him for the very next thing yeah, you've mentioned your mom and brother Scorla and Pastor Macy, I remember getting some prayer requests now and then about the husband of Pastor Macy. Was there any way that you felt that the, the encouragement of the body of believers that you're a part of was involved in this too? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, <clears throat> yeah, in, in the midst of that situation, I, there are so many things going on, and and we we say a lot. We kind of lived into different worlds and one world was you know whoever was at home and taking care of the kids and dealing with school drop-offs and meals and and uh everything like that and then we we'd switch off and and turn into hospital mode um and i i remember you know things like people showing up at the door with a meal i'm like hi i've never seen you before <laughs> Um, who are you? Uh, but they you know, just show up with a, with a meal or, um, we get, uh, cards in the mail, you know, right at the, at the, the time we needed them with some, some prayer or encouragement. Um, people would show up at the hospital. I remember having work meetings at, at the hospital. I had, you know, a collaborator in India who had traveled to the United States, um, and met me in the lobby of, of Riley, um, for a meeting. Uh, there were so many, so many ways that, that people adjusted and prayed and were there for us in ways that we, we never asked for and we didn't expect, but, but just came. Um, and, and so those, those things, lots of, lots of little things that just came, um, day to day and, and even, even in the hospital mode, um, you know, we think about, uh, you know, that, that manna as the provision and sustenance that the Israelites needed um, every day. It's not what they wanted, it's what they needed. Um, and there were things like, yeah, you know, I, I, I had uh, for a period of time worked at, at IU School of Medicine as a, a research faculty in medical genetics. And that was the unit that, or that was the department that staffed the NICU. Um, and so, 
there were former colleagues of mine that were, you know, walking the halls. And one of them was, was Clara's doctor, the, the first um, physician that she had. Um, so just being able to have conversations with these doctors about what was going on, that was, you know, satisfying, <laughs> satisfying to me and, and, uh, in little ways that helped to sustain me and, and help me cope with, with some of the, the uncertainties of what was going on. Lauren and her nursing background and being able to, to speak to the medical staff. Um, we, sh we had uh, one of uh, Lauren's former schoolmates was a, um, a resident in cardiology that randomly showed up in the room. It's like, oh, hi. <laughs> Didn't expect to see, see you here, but it was like every day these, these little things would happen. Um, and then there were big things too. I mean, uh, uh, Jonathan Baker showed up for every, every surgery, um, and, and stayed with us in the, in the waiting room. Um, Tom was there all the time. Uh, and there are probably still things that, that I didn't even know that happened or don't remember happening that, um, maybe some of you guys too. <laughs> Were, were a part of in, um, in caring for us during that time. And I just, I, those things, um, the ways that the, the body of Christ came together for us during that time to sustain us is just, uh, unbelievable. Sure. That, uh, the scripture that when, when you're in this sort of fast paced mode, uh, people's night, the panic and so on, that, uh, yeah, I mean, this was, and, and some of you guys may remember this too, but the summer of 2016 was when uh, Tom preached through Job. And I remember him saying, you know, in, in whatever, 40, 45 years of preaching, I've never preached Job. And he picked that summer to, to preach it. We thought that was, uh, that was a really nice preparation. We didn't know it at the time, but it was a really nice preparation for what was going to come. Um, and, uh, you know, I, there was the, the mantra uh, that I had for myself um, of, uh, you know, the Lord, Lord gave and, and take away, blessed be the Lord. Um, and uh, I remember for me, you know, part of, part of the experience of, of Lauren's pregnancy and Clara's six months in the NICU was we didn't know, uh, we didn't know whether she was going to survive. And there were times when I, I wasn't sure whether Lauren was going to survive. I mean, um, there was a lot of blood during that, <laughs> during that period of time. And I'm not big on blood. Um, uh, and so that was part of kind of the reconciliation of the situation was the Lord gives, the Lord takes away and whatever happens, um, whatever happens, blessed be the Lord. Um, so th that was a nice mantra for me was, uh, that's Job, uh, chapter one, uh, verse 21. Yeah, and I think another thing that came out of that series that was so helpful and impactful for me um, were the songs that we sang during that time period. I don't know if you guys can remember any of them, but um, when we were driving back and forth to Riley, it was like a 45 minute to an hour drive one way. And we were doing that several times a day sometimes. Um, and so that was a good time for me to listen to these songs. Um, one of them, actually, I found at from the Gospel Coalition Women's Conference that I attended in 2016, shortly before I found out I was pregnant, where we walked through First Peter, which also talks a lot about suffering and trials. Um, I remember that theme very clearly, like, oh gosh, what's going to happen to us? And then we went <laughs> through the trial. Um, but Keith and Kristen Getty were the ones who did the worship at that conference. And one of the songs that they sang, and I bought their CD, um, was the song, He Will Hold Me Fast. And if you haven't heard it, it's a beautiful song. Um, that really walks through the gospel essentially. Um, but it's based off of Psalm 139. And there's a couple of lines that I, I listened to that song hundreds of times because it really just, um, was such a comfort to me. The line is when I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. And then the other part is I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. Um, and just knowing like 
I couldn't, I couldn't do anything to change my circumstances and I couldn't do anything to alleviate my grief. Um, but I knew that he was holding me fast. And so I just would rely on that. Like anytime you just feel like you're being tossed about, you're drowning and you just, you think like, okay, I know the Lord is holding me. Like no matter what happens, I know he's holding me. And so I listened to that song truly hundreds of times. It's a beautiful song. Um, there were others too. There was one that we sang a lot at church. Um, it is well, where it talks about the waves and wind still know his name. And I remember thinking like, yeah, so we have, um, a little piece of, I don't know what it is, cardstock or something that has her footprints on it. And it says that verse on it, like they made a boat out of her footprint and it said the, the waves and winds still know his name. And we just like those things, um, the songs that you sing and really those can sometimes stick in your mind almost more than Bible verses at times. Cause you just have, you're just constantly singing those or playing those in your mind in the background the ones that point you back to Christ and the truth of his character and the promises that he's made to you about holding you fast. Um, those were huge for me in that time. So. The bright vision, when they shared their faith story about how in the face of trial, something about a hymn text that speak to you recurrently. And I give thanks to the Gettys being, you know, 21st century hymn writer that yeah. really adapted scripture and real life circumstances in a way that uh, yeah. And I think not all worship songs can do that, but I think just having gone through the Job series and then the First Peter series over that summer, um, I mean that, that was just such a kindness from the Lord to me personally that those were the songs that I had already heard. And that they were so applicable to what we were walking through at that time. It was just a gift. The, the more, uh, one other sort of side excursion that I mentioned this family, uh, are they still in Kansas City or Kansas? Your mom, is she local? Or? I grew up in Southern Indiana. Okay. So yeah, so my mom came up. I mean, she practically lived with us during that time. We could not have done it without her, but she was driving two and a half or three hours to come and watch our kids and keep our kids and yeah that was a lot for her so sort of the underlying circumstances yeah in crisis like this to have family that resonate and can be there to help uh, with what part of the story yeah yeah lauren's mom was uh was literally guardian angel i mean we couldn't have done it without her my parents weren't able to come the entire time. Uh, my mom's diagnoses were terminal. Um, so we had to, we had to go, um, I remember while during kind of a, a lull, if you, <laughs> if you can call it that a lull in, uh, Clara's care in February, uh, right after my mom was put on hospice, we went to go visit, um, and it was, uh, The Lord gives and takes away. A, lot of, a lot of things about that season um, where we could do nothing to change our circumstances and all we could do was trust in the Lord and know that he is trustworthy. Um, and there were times we didn't want that. <laughs> it didn't feel like enough. Um, and so I think too, that's another part of the story where we can look back and just, um, see now how the Lord was kind to us and faithful to us. Um, even when we were so deep in our grief that it was hard for us to see. Yeah, it was, um, I think if we would have known what was coming, I wouldn't, would not have been able to, <laughs> it wouldn't, wouldn't have been able to, to make it through. I mean, even, uh, you know, the, the miracle of bringing her home, which was complicated in and of itself. Um, I, I left a, the next day for my mom's memorial service. So Lauren's at home with uh, this baby on IV and a new NG tube and pump and two other little kids to, to deal with who like to pull on cords. 
Um, and yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, and I said, I, bye, I gotta go, <laughs> gotta go for the weekend. And, uh, that was really, really difficult. She was six months. She was six months. Emma had just turned two and, uh, Benjamin was four. Yeah. So, but we didn't have any, I, I think it was only one situation, uh, where we accidentally pulled a tube out. <laughs> um, Yeah. So that that was another miracle. Yeah. I don't know if you have a, sort of the rest of that story, but how is Star doing now? I think I saw her. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she's truly doing great. Um, I think most people who see her now who don't know her story would never guess that she'd been through all that. Um, I mean, she's had how many surgeries? major surgeries. She's had six, 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 and then several minor surgeries, lots of different procedures. Um, she's been through a lot. And I think if you saw her now, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know she's really doing great. Um, there are still a few things that she has kind of residual. So, um, one of the things that happened in her first surgery was that Fred removed her large intestine, which she will tell people now. Dr. Fred cut her belly. She'll tell you. Um, it's so funny, but, um, so there are things that come with that. Just, it's just a chronic diagnosis now that she has a, it's called short gut syndrome and there's varying degrees of short gut syndrome. And it means different things for every kid who has it. And really she has, um, the most ideal situation you can have for short gut. And so we're so thankful for that. Um, but there are a few things that she still is dealing with that we are still dealing with, with her, um, that we're, are kind of just have no answers for at times that we just have to get through and wait and see if she outgrows some of it or what will happen. So there's still some uncertainty about how her future will look. Um, but truly she's doing great. So we've had almost 18 months where we haven't been at Riley, which, um, feels really incredible. And so I think now we're kind of transitioning to where she is she's really making a lot of progress and we just want to be conscious and aware of giving thanks to the Lord for those times where she is so healthy. Um, so that we can feel better prepared when she does go to the hospital to still be thankful. Um, that's challenging, but yeah, she's really doing great. You haven't said a lot about Benjamin and Emma, but I'm sure they were more than just minor players in the story yeah. hour. Yeah. Yeah. They're doing well. It, that was a really hard situation to be in with two small kids. Uh, just the, how much I had to be away from them and how small Emma was. Uh, that was really hard for, on me as a mom. Um, I don't actually think she remembers very much of it, which I'm glad about. <laughs> um, but Benjamin does remember some things in that. It was just really hard, especially like actually one of the hardest parts was bringing her home um, and dealing with her medical care by myself, essentially while Troy tried to work, um, and also taking care of Benjamin and Emma, that was really hard. And that lasted a long time. So, I mean, I think sometimes people think like, oh, she's home from the NICU. That's incredible. And it was incredible that we got to bring her home, but it wasn't like everything is easy breezy now. It was still really, really hard. Um, and we were still back at Riley. I think Troy mentioned we were back at Riley every week that first summer that we brought her home for a procedure that she had to have. And then she ended up having a surgery that October and then another surgery the next summer. And so, um, yeah, I think our kids are, they're just unaware that that's not like a normal thing that can happen. Like, oh, Claire's at Riley again. <laughs> um, but it is really hard as a parent. It's it, when she has been at Riley, even after we brought her home, she's usually there for five to seven days. And that's really disruptive to our family life. It's really hard on our big kids to have to be shuffled around and figure out childcare for them. And, um, it's stressful for them to, to feel like they don't know if Claire, you know, is Claire sick. And, um, a lot of her issues is throwing up. And so, <laughs> You're just coming in like, did she barf again? <laughs> There's barfing again. Um, so it's funny in a way, but yeah, they're just kind of conditioned to like also look for symptoms of when she might be getting sick. So we've kind of warped their little minds, but um, they're also doing really great. And I think too, because we've been out of her being so 
critically ill for a long time that it's yeah they're just regular siblings for the most part so you mentioned that your training experience before was as a nurse which yeah, it was a blessing and a curse for sure. Um, because I wanted to know what was going on. I felt like, especially in the beginning, that was kind of an unhealthy coping mechanism for me to kind of like grasp for control in just knowing what was going on. Um, and so, yeah, that part was not great, but I think too, it's just incredible to think like that the Lord, nursing was not my first degree. It was my second degree. Um, and I worked in adult oncology and, um, which had very little crossover knowledge for the NICU. Some of the terminology is the same, but obviously the care is very different. Um, but some of the things that she came home with, like a central line, a lot of oncology patients have central lines. And so I was very well versed in doing central line dressing changes, which is a pretty, it's a, you have to have be sterile and it's, um, a lot of steps involved to make sure that they don't get an infection in their central line. And I had done that for years, hundreds of central line dressing changes. Um, I never once imagined that I would do it on my own child, <laughs> but that preparation, I, it's just incredible to me to think about now, like how the Lord brought me through, through nursing school and then brought us to faith to have known Fred and, um, those pieces we can look back on and just think like, wow, that was incredible preparation that we couldn't have known at the time, but was very useful for the situation that we were in. So, well, you mentioned that blood a lot. Your introduction said you're coming as a scientist, which is about generic. Well, you know, I, well, Lauren doesn't like me to go too into it. <laughs> I can talk for a long time if you guys want to. I've noticed there's a whiteboard over here. So, um, no, so I'm, I'm, a, uh, I'm a computational biologist. And so that's about as far from the blood as you can get. It's uh, electronics, you know. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was really strange um, to be there in that situation and, and kind of wear two hats. I mean, I, I did a lot of work from the hospital. I, mean, I took a lot of meetings from, from her room. Um, obviously I knew, I knew a lot of the, the physicians that were there and I feel like we, you know, we were able to communicate with people. Riley is not a place where you have a lot of well-informed parents, especially in the NICU. A lot of people who, who go into that situation and just have absolutely no idea what's going on. And we were the opposite of that situation. We we're asking tons of questions, keeping those doctors in the room. Hey, we're getting our money's worth <laughs> all $3 million of that care, uh, we got our money's worth. Um, but, it, you know, part of my coping mechanism was trying to get answers to, to questions that, that didn't have answers. And so we spent a lot of time talking through, you know, what alternative care looked like and what the diagnosis looked like and how did this come to be and you know, what's the etiology of, of neck. Um, and that, that has, has turned out to be a, a fruitful thing for me as well. So, so after that experience, I took on an adjunct position in, in the department of surgery at, at the school of medicine. Um, and I've got a nice research collaboration with one of the, the other faculty there, not Fred, but, but one of his colleagues. Um, and, uh, I think we're, we're actually making really nice progress on earlier diagnosis of, of this condition. Um, so, uh, yeah, we just, just, just got a, a nice grant from the Gerber foundation to support that work. Um, so it's been really interesting to, to kind of follow up on where the whole experience is, has taken us there. And I, I still go back and forth, like, when am I wearing my dad hat and when am I wearing my scientist hat? But, um, I, I feel like for me that that has been a really nice coping mechanism because it's. It's it, what a gift to be able to have, have the ability to follow up on the things that, that were unknowns for me that, that really ate at me the entire time. Like, how did this come to be? Um, and so I'm, I'm really thankful for that background and the ability to just communicate with, with all that medical staff and, and be able to follow up on it, not just to care for Clara, but to think about, you know, what, what does it look like to do this, uh, to, to help this situation for someone else who comes along? Cause I'm not a very, 
I, I can be emotional for myself, but I'm not very good emotional support for anybody else. <laughs> so, you know, I, you know, I, I, I don't think that, that we could, we could go back and especially not me. I, I'm not, wouldn't be very good at caring for someone else who was going through the same situation, but I can, I can sit at my computer and, <laughs> and do, and do some work and I can read papers and, and work on this kind of stuff. So uh, I, I feel like it's a, it's a really nice path back to, you know, how can I help to support other people who may, may face the same situation. In a career sense, there's another application of giving and taking away that you had to change the direction to that. Yeah. Curious, did you know about Zoom before the pandemic? Zoom, yeah, you know, we uh, we never used Zoom before the pandemic. It was always uh, uh, Skype. Yeah. Well, Lily, Lily and Alenka were big uh, Microsoft customers, you know, so Skype. So it's didn't know about those things at all. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, uh, I, my team is, uh, international. And so I've, I've had to, to have lots of meetings with people in Europe and, and India. And so a lot of, uh, a lot of video calls. Yeah. Incredible story. Uh, are there ways that we can continue to pray for you? I mean, some of us remember sort of vaguely when the, yeah, I think that is exactly where our prayer requests are headed. Um, I had written down, um, we would love prayer just for parenting our three kids, this, that we would steward that role well, um, but also for wisdom in making decisions for Clara. This, this past year has felt um, some of that anxiety has crept back up with COVID and just figuring out how to best navigate that with her. Um, and so, yeah, we would just love prayers for wisdom in, in how to make decisions um, health-wise for her. Um, I also think too, walking back through this story after five years, um, it's so, it's so good to remember the ways that the Lord was faithful to us and how he provided for us. Um, but there are parts of it that are still just really tender. And so I think, um, just prayer that we would continue to take that to the Lord and, um, let him heal us in that so that he can use all the parts of our story, um, for his glory. So.